Afrika Zora Afrika Amka na Unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, the family of Lesotho's former military commander say they believe his death was a premeditated assassination. And excitement from Kenyans as American President Barack Obama heads to their country for the first time as president. But first up, the news with Onelin Tsinsi. Thank you, Lulu. An Egyptian police raid on an apartment in Cairo has killed nine wanted men, including senior Muslim Brotherhood leader Nasser Ahufi. The raid in the 6th of October district comes as security forces were engaged in fierce fightings with Islamic State group jihadists in the Sinai Peninsula. At least 70 soldiers and civilians have been killed. Libya's rival government will not return to peace talks this week after rebel forces on Wednesday rejected the latest proposal defying threats the UN Security Council would impose sanctions on anyone who stands in the way of a deal. The National General Congress Parliament in Tripoli, which was seized by rebel forces last year, said it would consult for a week on the new draft, ruling out returning to the talks due to begin in Morocco on Thursday. More details of dreadful violence by Boko Haram fighters emerged on Wednesday at the UN where the organization's human rights chief called for a response to the commensurate magnitude. In his speech to the Human Rights Council, Zaidra al-Hussein spoke of vicious and discriminate attacks stretching back years in and around northern Nigeria. Zaid is calling for accountability for the extremists and those government forces fighting them, Diane Penn explains. Detailing a list of horrific crimes described by survivors, the UN High Commissioner told the Human Rights Council that the attacks had been going for years. While northern Nigeria had suffered terribly at the hands of Boko Haram, so too had neighboring Niger, Chad and Cameroon. The UN Rights Chief criticized Nigeria's tough security measures, which include closing borders and limiting the movement of people, saying it only served to push people to the extremists. Nigeria's ambassador, Dr. Martin Ohumoibi, meanwhile said that Boko Haram's pledge of allegiance to ISIS was a wake-up call and that his country had been forced to declare a state of emergency in three northern states to combat the threat. Lesotho's Prime Minister Pagadita Mosisidi has spoken out for the first time since the killing of former Army Commander Mabarangwe Mahau. Mosisidi says the government is devastated by Mahau's death. Mosisidi says he does not know how Mahau was killed, but the Army Command told government that Mahau attempted to resist arrest. He says the government found it imperative to request Sadiq to investigate the matter. Demise of Brigadier Mabarangwe Mahau has been most devastating to us as government and of course to the family as well. We've 
been informed by the command of the LDF. There was an exchange of fire, or shots were fired, and I want to hurry and say we thought that it would be wise for Sadak to come to our assistance in terms of one sending pathologists to do a post-mortem. And finally, Liberia confirmed on Wednesday it had at least two cases of Ebola. Nearly two months after the West African country's worst hit by the disease had been declared free of it. More than 11,200 people have died since last year in the worst ever outbreak of Ebola. Liberian authorities are monitoring more than 100 people to contain a new outbreak after a body of a 17-year-old Abraham Maimaga tested positive for the virus on Sunday. Health officials in Liberia say there are currently no indications that the case was imported from a neighboring country. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelensinsi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A team of pathologists from South Africa and a team of investigators from Namibia and Zimbabwe will investigate the killing of Lesotho's former army commander Maparangwe Mahau. This after Sadek agreed to a request from the government of Lesotho for assistance to find the truth. This is the conclusion that was reached during the visit of Sadek facilitator for Lesotho, Cyril Ramaphosa. The Mahau family believes his death was a premeditated assassination but speaking out for the first time to the SABC, Prime Minister Pakadita Musisidi says the army's commander says he doesn't know what happened. Ntakwanangatane reports. Lesotho Prime Minister Pakadita Musisidi has spoken out for the first time since the killing of former army commander Maaparangwe Mahau. He says the death of Mahau has been devastating for the government and the family. Demise of Brigadier Maaparangwe Mahau has been most devastating to us as government and of course to the family as well what is uh, what is your take what for you actually happened i don't know we've been uh, informed by the uh, command of the ldf that uh, brigadier maparangwa mahao was the very last officer they were apprehending of the 54, 55, 56 officers, they tell us that uh, there was uh, a confrontation uh, along the way. There was an exchange of fire, or shots were fired. Maybe that's the better way to put it. Shots were fired, apparently because, as they say, there was some uh, sort of resistance to to arrest and uh, he was taken he was shot and rushed to hospital where most unfortunately he succumbed now that is that is the 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 version that we we've so far uh, got
The Mahao family says his body has three bullet wounds that shattered his right arm. There are three other bullet wounds on his right chest. His face and lips were wounded and swollen. This, the family says, is consistent with the story told by his nephews that he was shot before he could move and that he was dragged with his legs face down. With these two versions of the story, Prime Minister Bakati Tamusisidi echoes Deputy Prime Minister Motechwa Metsing's earlier statement that his government has requested SADAC to assist Lesotho with investigating Mahao's death. And I want to hurry and say we have uh, thought that it would be wise for SADAC to come to our assistance in terms of one uh, sending pathologists to do uh, a post-mortem and establish what the cause of death was. Secondly, to send a team of investigators that again will Working together with 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 our our, our police, they can uh, investigate and determine exactly what happened. This request was one of the conclusions of talks with stakeholders and SADC facilitator, Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa. South Africa will be sending pathologists to do the examination, and the other countries in the region. Zimbabwe and Namibia will be sending investigators to investigate the circumstances around uh, uh, Lieutenant uh, General Mahao's death. He says all stakeholders in Lesotho are saddened by Mahao's death. He took time to pass condolences to the family in person. Joang Malabo is a member of parliament and deputy leader of Basotho National Party, whose leader, Tesile Masiribane, fled the country with former Prime Minister Tom Tabane, saying they fear for their lives. They were later joined by leader of the reformed Congress of Lesotho, Kikezo Ransu. Since last month, the opposition parties have been saying the security situation in the country is cause for allowing the military to go ahead with this uh, so-called uh, mutiny investigation. It is just simply allow them to carry on both with the human rights ex- uh, violations that go with that process, but also to um, fail to uh, recognize the authority of the Lusota courts. And uh, ultimately, unfortunately, it has played a role, uh, directly or indirectly, in the murder of um, Lieutenant General uh, Mahal. Following Ramaphosa's visit, Zhuang Malabo says they are now encouraged. Which is a welcome relief from the attitude that you see from the government, which continues to be very casual and laissez-faire and that everything is fine. All of this, I think, really are issues that uh, give us a lot of uh, encouragement that we will finally see progress in bringing this situation to rest. SADAC will host a double-tracker summit in Pretoria on Friday to further find the way forward to what... Troika Chairperson President Jacob Zuma said is an apparent explosive situation. I'm Takwana Ngatani in Maseru, Lesotho. The Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras has told his country to vote no in an upcoming referendum that could determine whether Greece stays or leaves the euro. 
Eurozone leaders have frozen talks with Greece on negotiating any new deal before Sunday's decision on the conditions for a financial rescue after Athens submitted another fresh proposal offering some new concessions. Sandra Gathman reports. It's officially a waiting game for Greece. Eurozone leaders have frozen talks on a new bailout until the Greek people decide whether or not to accept the terms for financial aid in a referendum taking place on Sunday. There will be no further talks the coming days, nor at Eurogroup level, nor between uh, the Greek uh, authorities and the institutions uh, on proposals or financial arrangements. We will simply await now the outcome of the referendum. On Tuesday, creditors dismissed a proposal from Athens offering some concessions, saying Greece missed the chance to negotiate its last bailout, which expired the night before. With no time left to negotiate a fresh deal, German Chancellor Angela Merkel says Sunday's referendum will determine the next course of action. Holding a referendum is a democratic sovereign right of the Greek state. It is the legitimate right of Greece to do that whenever they want and about whatever they want and whatever recommendation the government wants. But to make it clear, it is also a democratic sovereign right of the other 18 member states of the Eurozone to respond to the Greek decision in a proportionate way. Meanwhile, Greece's Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras has assured the Greek people that rejecting the creditors' terms will not lead to the collapse of the country. Wages and pensions will not be lost. The deposits of those citizens who chose not to move their money abroad will not be lost on the sacrificial altar of blackmail. I personally take full responsibility for finding a solution right after the democratic process. But whether Greece's banks will survive is another matter entirely. On Wednesday, the European Central Bank decided not to pump Greek lenders with additional emergency loans, effectively turning up the heat on Athens to agree to a financial rescue or see the collapse of its banking system. Greek people are already getting a sense of life with little cash. Pensioners are struggling to survive on the little amounts allowed under capital controls introduced this week. With more and more people becoming fed up with the political impasse, the odds for a no vote have climbed to 54%. After Sunday, Greece and the euro will truly be in unchartered waters. Sandra Gatman, Brussels. It's official. The United States and Cuba will re-establish diplomatic ties and reopen embassies in respective capitals for the first time in 54 years. The anticipated announcement came from the White House when President Barack Obama confirmed the historic news after months of high-level negotiations between Washington and Havana. Sean Bryce-Peace reports from the United States Capitol. Good morning, everybody. It's taken 54 years, but diplomatic ties will be re-established when embassies reopen on July 20th. There have been very real, profound differences between our governments, and sometimes we allow ourselves to be trapped by a certain way of doing things. For the United States, that meant clinging to a policy that was not working. Instead of supporting democracy and opportunity for the Cuban people, our efforts to isolate Cuba, despite good intentions, increasingly had the opposite effect cementing the status quo and isolating the United States from our neighbors in this hemisphere. He emphasized the importance of not being imprisoned by the past and a decades-long policy that has not rendered the desired results. Yes, there are those who want to turn back the clock and double down on a policy of isolation, but it's long past time for us to realize that this approach doesn't work. It hasn't worked for 50 years. 
shuts America out of Cuba's future, and it only makes life worse for the Cuban people. The United Nations General Assembly has for more than two decades passed resolutions calling for the economic blockade to be done away with. President Obama again asked Congress to lift the embargo as sentiment in both countries had long shifted. Americans and Cubans alike are ready to move forward. I believe it's time for Congress to do the same. And I've called on Congress to take steps to lift the embargo that prevents Americans from traveling or doing business in Cuba. We've already seen members from both parties begin that work. After all, why should Washington stand in the way of our own people? A year ago, it might have seemed impossible that the United States would once again be raising our flag, the Stars and Stripes, over an embassy in Havana. Congressional leaders, including Republican Speaker John Boehner, slammed the announcement. He said the Obama administration was handing the Castros a lifetime dream of legitimacy without getting a thing for the Cuban people being oppressed by a brutal communist dictatorship. But, in the president's words... This is what change looks like. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in Washington. It's 8.16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. More details of dreadful violence by Boko Haram fighters has emerged at the UN where the organization's human rights chief called for a response of commensurate magnitude. In his speech to the Human Rights Council yesterday, Zaid Rad al-Hussein spoke of vicious and indiscriminate attacks stretching back years in and around northern Nigeria. Zaid highlighted the plight of girls and women who had been abducted by Boko Haram before being forced to marry and raped, before calling for accountability for the extremists and those government forces fighting them. UN Radio's Diane Pan has more. Detailing a list of horrific crimes described by survivors, the UN High Commissioner told the Human Rights Council that the attacks had been going for years. While northern Nigeria had suffered terribly at the hands of Boko Haram, so too had neighboring Niger, Chad and Cameroon. They include massacres, the burning down of entire villages, attacks on protected sites such as places of worship and schools, and the slaughter of people taking refuge in such sites, torture, cruel and degrading treatment following sentences in so-called courts, abduction on a massive scale, including of children, forced displacement, child recruitment, and extremely severe and widespread violations of the rights of women and girls, including sexual slavery, sexual violence, forced so-called marriages, and forced pregnancy in violation of human rights and international humanitarian law principles. The rights chief spoke of how men and boys had been grouped together and butchered before women and girls were abducted. These victims were sexually abused, raped and forced into marriage, Zaid Rad al-Hussein said, and some had become pregnant against their will. Noting that abortion is not permitted in Nigeria except on strict medical grounds, the High Commissioner called for the country to make a special case for the young girls who'd escaped from their captors. Many formerly captive women and young girls are pregnant, some by their rapists, and several reportedly wish to terminate these unwanted pregnancies. I strongly urge the most compassionate possible interpretation of the current regulations in Nigeria to include the risk of suicide and risks to mental health 
for women and young girls who have suffered such appalling cruelty. The UN rights chief criticized Nigeria's tough security measures, which include closing borders and limiting the movement of people, saying it only served to push people to the extremists. And Cameroon was also in the human rights spotlight, facing a call to release alleged child soldiers who'd fought for Boko Haram and which it had placed in detention in near-starvation conditions. Nigeria's ambassador, Dr. Martin Ohumoibi, meanwhile said that Boko Haram's pledge of allegiance to ISIS was a wake-up call and that his country had been forced to declare a state of emergency in three northern states to combat the threat. A full report on Boko Haram's activities is due before the UN Rights Forum in September. Diane Penn, United Nations. Analysts anticipate that a report released by the United Nations accusing South Sudan's government of committing atrocities against its own people is likely to affect the country's peace talks. Koleta Wanjohi reports. The South Sudan conflict began in December 2013 with a power struggle between President Salva Kiir and former Vice President Riek Mashar. Reports have been made about continuous violations of human rights as the two factions continue fighting. Both parties have been blaming each other for the reports. However, now a new report by the United Nations is blaming the government only for serious violations in Unity State. According to the report released by the United Nations Mission in South Sudan, UNIMIS, people testified that the South Sudan People's Liberation Army, the government's army, raped and burned girls alive in areas of oil-rich Unity State. This report has been released as the South Sudan peace talks were expected to resume any time soon. Now that the African Union has officially commissioned five other countries to be part of the IGAD-led mediation. The UN report is just one of the many reports that have been released on atrocities being committed in South Sudan since December 2013. However, now that this time the fingers are being pointed directly only at the government, it is likely to pose a huge challenge of legitimacy on the administration of President Salva Kiir. Some analysts say that this report may complicate the South Sudan peace talks since it gives a criminal face to the government and jeopardizes its bargaining power before the rebel faction. Olesugun Alkinsanya is a security analyst based in Addis Ababa. All these issues, they are not really external issues, but they are internal issues that need to be addressed, that needs to come out with forcefully by the UN in bringing the falters uh, to book, except that is done. It's not going to help the mediation process because it means there are still a lot of skeletons in cupboards and, and that is not going to help. Other analysts feel that for the report not to break the expected resumption of peace talks and its progress, then it should be treated as a separate entity. Sunday Okelo is a political analyst based in Addis Ababa, and he says instead the report can be used by the mediators as an awakening call to the South Sudan warring factions of the worsening situation in their own country. It may be a name and shame process as well to tell the mediators and the people mediating and representing both sides of the mediation to table it in front of them and say, look, this is what is going on in your country and you need to stop. Uh, this is the kind of product that you are actually producing uh, and it's, it's contrary to the product of what the talks should actually produce. So um, it may be highlighted to them. Uh, not in a form that would actually stop the talks. The release of the United Nations report has also awakened the demands that African Union does the same and releases the report of the AU Commission of Inquiry on South Sudan. 
the findings of this report still remain shelved from the public. Peace talks between the warring factions of South Sudan, mediated by the Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD, are yet to resume. Colette Njoi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. As American President Barack Obama heads for a visit to Nairobi in what is said to be his first since taking office, Kenyans living in the U.S. have expressed their excitement. This will be Obama's fourth visit to sub-Saharan Africa, as Kate Fisher tells us from Washington. Jane Ruggieri moved to America 15 years ago. Born and brought up in Kenya, she's now made her home in Delaware on the East Coast. She moved here with her four sons, who are amongst the 100,000 Kenyans living in the country. Despite the wait of seven years, she's now delighted that Barack Obama will visit his father's homeland as president. There's going to be a tribe in Kenya where his father comes from. They will not sleep for days. They will dance in the streets of that country like nobody ever knows. You see it on TV. They cannot sleep. I don't even know they'll have to mount the kind of security because that is the one community we know that can celebrate its heroes. And for Obama, he is considered a superhero. But despite the family connections, Africa hasn't always been a key part of President Obama's foreign policy. His administration has spent a lot more time and money trying to deal with problems in the Middle East and developing greater links with Asia. Although last year the White House hosted the African Leaders Summit and the Young African Leaders Initiative. President Obama will visit Kenya as part of a trip which includes attending the Global Entrepreneurship Summit. Some, like David Amakobi, an immigration activist, see that as part of a wider policy to stop giving Africa handouts in favor of asking them to support themselves. I think President Obama has given Africa some tough love, which any kid should give the parents. He, he doesn't feel like uh, it's bad to tell Africans, you know what, you, you, you need to do business. And when you do business, you get respect and you get more money. President Obama didn't visit Kenya when he last went to Africa in 2013 because the country's leader, Uhuru Kenyatta, had been charged with crimes against humanity by the International Criminal Court. Those charges have now been dropped. But this year, he will make it to his father's homeland. The White House is describing this summit as a global platform for deepening relations between the U.S. government and African leaders. Kate Fisher, Washington. South Africa's ruling African National Congress in Parliament says it remains confident that two-thirds of the National Assembly's members will pass a resolution to recommend the appointment of Cecil Burgess as the new Inspector General of Intelligence. But the main opposition Democratic Alliance says the best solution is to refer the matter back to the Joint Standing Committee on Intelligence to choose another candidate. Burgess is a former chair person of the Joint Standing Committee on Intelligence and the Haddock Committee on the Protection of State Information Bill. Mercedes Percent reports. The report recommending the nomination of Cecil Burgess was on the agenda of the National Assembly last Wednesday. The report could not be considered during the House sitting as ANC Chief Whipstone Cizani asked for it to stand over. Even if it was considered, two-thirds of the members of the National Assembly would have had to vote in favor of the report, recommending the appointment of Burgess by President Jacob Zuma. This means 266 of the 400 members of the National Assembly should vote in favor of his nomination. 
Currently, the ANC has 249 seats in the National Assembly. This means all ANC MPs, including the Deputy President, plus 17 MPs from the opposition benches, would need to vote in favor of Burgess. ANC caucus spokesperson Muloto Motapo says while the DA and the EFF have made it clear that they will not support the nomination of Burgess, the party will rely on the support of other smaller opposition parties to get a two-thirds majority. Motapo says the ANC is confident that it will garner support. Critical resolutions have been passed in the past without uh, us having the two-third majority. Two-third majority has never been a deterrent. The political engagement, um, interaction with uh, other political parties, persuasion, that is why it has always been the case in terms of our parliamentary politics. So you will be aware that uh, during the final meeting of the committee that conducted interviews on this particular position, several parties did say that they want to go back to their caucuses to consult in order to have a, a position on the proposed candidate uh, proposed by the committee. But the DA spokesperson on intelligence, David Mania, says the only solution for the National Assembly to secure a two-thirds majority is to refer the matter back to the Joint Standing Committee on Intelligence and to look for other candidates. We think it's very unlikely that Mr. Cecil Burgess uh, will... Uh, secure the support of two-thirds of the members of the National Assembly, and we think it's very unlikely uh, that he will be appointed as the next Inspector General. The immediate solution uh, is for the matter to be referred back to the Joint Standing Committee on Intelligence and for the Joint Standing Committee on Intelligence to nominate another candidate that will receive the support of two-thirds of the members of the National Assembly. There's no doubt in my mind that very good candidates were, were, were interviewed by the Joint Standing Committee on Intelligence and that there are candidates that will receive the support of two-thirds of the members of the National Assembly. Mania says in the long term, her candidate for the position of Inspector General of Intelligence should be a retired judge. He says this would therefore require an amendment to the Intelligence Oversight Act. For now, the position of Inspector General of Intelligence remains vacant. Meanwhile, the ANC's Moloto Motapo says the party believes that the National Assembly's Program Committee will prioritize the committee's report to be scheduled for debate in the National Assembly when Parliament resumes in a few weeks' time. He says the position is critical and needs to be filled without delay. That report by Mercedes Percent. Africa, rise and shine. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Onelen Zinzi. Chaired forces arrest Boko Haram leader and hold 74 others. Libya's rival government will not return to peace talks this week after rebel forces rejected the latest proposal and Liberia confirms return of the Ebola virus. Channel Africa News.
United Nations experts say killer heat waves can catch governments by surprise, but that could be a thing of the past thanks to a new early warning system that's now available. Led by the World Meteorological Organization, WMO, and the World Health Organization, the Heat Waves and Health Initiative provides governments with procedures that they can put in place to protect vulnerable individuals. WMO spokesperson Claire Nullis says a lot of countries can benefit from the plan. A number of countries already have heat health warning systems. They work very, very well. Europe is a good example, United States. But many countries don't have this. And so what we've done by producing this guidance, and it's a fairly lengthy technical publication, it's case studies on best practices, it gives ideas on what sort of health interventions are necessary, what sort of health interventions work. Can you give me an example? I mean, we've had terrible heat waves recently in India, Karachi. There was the 2003 heat wave in Europe that obviously caused thousands of deaths. Are those the kind of templates you're working from? Yes. To take the example of Europe, the 2003 heat wave killed tens of thousands of people. We expect that such heat waves will become more common and they will become more intense as a result of climate change. Europe learnt a lot of lessons as a result of the 2003 heat wave. And as a result, Europe now has a very, very, very effective system. It's called Euroheat. To give an example, the German Weather Service or the UK Met Office, they will issue a warning about a heat wave expected to develop in the next two or three days. That will then trigger government action. It will trigger action by health authorities to set aside a certain number of beds, um, you know, for for elderly, elderly hospital patients. It will trigger action by education authorities if there is a need for schools to stay closed as a precaution. Sometimes it's very simple measures. It's a case of giving advice to people, you know, stay indoors between the hours of two and seven drink lots of water. So there's a number of very simple measures that we can take, a number of more costly, complicated measures, but it does need coordinated action between the meteorological services and government decision makers and obviously the health sector. In other parts of the world, we hope that the guidance that we're issuing will help to develop capacity to have a more coordinated response. Say, for instance, the heat wave in Karachi last week, which killed more than 1,000 people. The levels of heat were not unprecedented, but it was a combination of factors. There was a low-pressure area situated just off the coast, And that effectively brought in warmer air from central Pakistan into Karachi. Karachi is normally cooled by a coastal breeze. That didn't happen for about five days um, last week just because of this low pressure area. But it wasn't just the weather alone. It was a combination of other factors. Um, It was the fact that there were power cuts, which meant people couldn't use fans, they couldn't use air conditioning. We're in the middle of Ramadan, so obviously people are not drinking as they would normally be drinking. So we hope this guidance, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It really is you know, a collection of different case studies on what you can do to develop a heat health warning system which suits your national circumstances. That was Claire Nullis, spokesperson for the World Meteorological Organization, speaking to you and radio's Daniel Johnson.
Rising incomes and population growth in developing countries will spur increased demand for food over the next 10 years. This according to the Agricultural Outlook 2015-2024, launched on this week by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development and the UN Food and Agricultural Organization, FAO. However, despite increased demand, prices for agricultural products are expected to decline over the next decade. Director of FAO's Trade Markets Division, Bubaka Ben Belhassan, highlights some of the report's main findings. While prices, we expect them to decline, they would remain at a higher level than in the years preceding the first food price spike in 2007-2008. This should not be an excuse for contentment. Shocks due to macroeconomic condition or weather aggravated by climate change could disrupt markets. In fact, our analysis in the report shows that there is a good probability of another severe shock within the next 10 years. The last message I would like to highlight is that we see positive improvements in the nutrition situation in developing countries. This is very good news. However, other forms of malnutrition remain and need to be tackled, like overweight, obesity, and diet-related diseases. The report also points to the growing role of a relatively small group of countries in supplying global markets with key commodities. What are your observations there? Well, here let me make uh, two points, actually. Uh, True exports of agricultural commodities are projected to become concentrated in a fewer countries, while at the same time imports are becoming more dispersed over a larger number of countries. The increasing share of few countries in supplying for some key commodities could increase market risks. On the second, uh, I would like to add that significant changes, in fact, in trade have taken place over the last decade or so. A number of developing countries have significantly boosted their exports, and this trend is expected to continue in the future. In fact, much of the growth in global export is attributed to developing countries, and much of this is going to other developing countries, resulting in increased South-South trade. Here it is extremely important to boost agricultural investment in these countries to strengthen the resilience of their production systems and minimize disruption to world markets. You mentioned this a little bit, but are there real risks of food price spikes in the coming decade? Well, agricultural markets are volatile by nature, in fact, and this will continue to be the case in the future. The risk analysis conducted in this report indicates that the likelihood of price reaching the level seen in 2007, 2008 or in 2012 is relatively low. Still, this does not rule out the possibility of prices going significantly outside this. On the upside, though, I think if another shock happens, the world is now better prepared to deal with it. We have learned from the past. The highly sophisticated robotic assisted surgery for the treatment of prostate cancer is rapidly catching on in South Africa, like in other countries such as Europe and the United States. Urologists say the Da Vinci robotic technology has many benefits, including the ability to provide superior clinical prostate cancer treatment results when compared to non-robotic, traditional and scope-assisted procedures. Our reporter Elizabeth Ledecha spoke to Jacques Duplessis, Managing Director of the Netcare Hospital Division in Midrand, north of Johannesburg, about why this technology has become the procedure of choice for the treatment of prostate cancer. The Vinci surgical system essentially consists of a console 
at which a surgeon sits while uh, peering at a magnified three-dimensional high-definition area of the operating area. They remotely control four robotic arms, so it doesn't make a, uh, a surgeon a fantastic surgeon, it just uh, gives him far more control. And specifically when uh, very delicate work is being done like prostate surgery where these nerve bundles where one has to uh, circumnavigate around and uh, the robot just gives that additional stability and the ability for the surgeon to perfect his procedure. How many of these procedures have been successfully performed using the system so far? So we've done uh, more than 200 uh, prostatectomies, specifically in South Africa, in our two facilities. We've got a uh, robotic system in uh, Netcare Waterfall City in Johannesburg in Midrand and then at uh, our Netcare Christian Barnard Hospital in Cape Town. And is there criteria that you use to select patients that are eligible for the surgery? Certainly. We've in fact got a uh, a proctor, a uh, South African doctor that used to practice in the UK at the NHS Trust, Dr. Greg Bostet. He's personally performed more than 600 of these uh, robotic-assisted prostatectomies, and he's actually managing our program, and we have created a set of criteria and which patients are selected for the surgery, but very much so uh, most patients do uh, qualify. It depends, obviously, on some certain medical criteria. The surgery does give better outcome, specifically when it comes to incontinence and impotence rates. Tell us about the disadvantages and limitations with this technology. Are there any risks associated with it? Any procedure always has got risks. If there is a very obese patient, for example, it's more difficult to use the robotic uh, system, but uh, so will be an open procedure. So depending on the comorbidities of the individual patient, whether surgery per se is a, an option to be considered, obviously remains the surgeon's decision. There's other treatment modalities as well, which does not entail invasive surgery. How does the recovery time compare for robotic surgery versus other forms of surgery? Excellent. You know, if you compare that to an open procedure, which you will be in hospital for at least seven to ten days, with this robotic-assisted surgery where there's four keyhole type of incisions made, the maximum length of stay is about three days, and that will still continue to decrease as the surgeon's skill improves. So certainly not only length of stay, but also the amount of recovery time that one has after open surgery as opposed to the robotic-assisted surgery is dramatically less. There's hardly any blood loss, no blood transfusions, so the list carries on in terms of the advantages. Now, you mentioned that you performed more than 200 of these procedures so far. What's the general feeling of your patients towards this technology? I think uh, that healthcare is becoming uh, more consumer-driven. Patients are not ill-informed. They use the internet, they research their illness, and uh, this specific type of procedure is the gold standard in the Americas and in Europe, and uh, patients are certainly starting to inquire about this uh, alternative form of radical uh, prostatectomy. Let's now talk about the difficulties that you encountered at the beginning when you first started using the technology. What were the challenges? 
Certainly, I think, you know, uh, it is new technology, so medical schemes are reluctant to fund these type of procedures unless they can see the benefits of it, so it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. So that was definitely a, a hurdle, and then also to convince uh, the surgeons and uh, the urologists that uh, there is an alternative as opposed to uh, the alternatives they've been using for the last 20 or 30 years. In terms of the costs involved, do you consider this as a problem? No, not at all. In fact, uh, we uh, specifically as NETCARE uh, don't charge any more than a laparoscopic procedure would be, which is the procedure for uh, total prostatectomy. It's been around for at least 15 years and we don't charge anything more. I know that this is a fairly new technology in South Africa, but what do you think is the future of robotic surgery? What are the prospects of expanding it so that it can be used to treat other forms of cancer? Exactly. I mean, I think uh, that's the benefit of this uh, robotic-assisted surgery. Uh, The majority of surgeries is, at this stage, still prostatectomies. But in the rest of the world, we see that also from a gynecological point of view, female gynecological point of view, and even uh, thoracic uh, procedures are more and more being done by the uh, robotic-assisted system. That was Jacques Duplessis, Managing Director of the Netcare Hospital Division in Midrand, north of Johannesburg, in conversation with Elizabeth Lidicha. South Africa's mobile operator Vodacom has welcomed the Competition Commission's decision to approve with conditions its merger with Neotel. After the merger, Neotel will be wholly owned by Vodacom. The Commission says the merger will significantly change the mobile network industry. Tsepo Mungwai and Gloria Sefako compiled this report. The move will consolidate Vodacom's dominant position in the market. The commission found that it will substantially lessen or prevent competition. To address these concerns, the commission recommended that conditions be imposed on the measure. They include Vodacom not using Neotel Spectrum for wholesale or retail mobile services for two years, not to retrench any of Neotel's employees as a result of the measure. Vodacom has welcomed the decision by the commission. It says it's looking forward to working with applicable regulatory bodies to achieve a speedy outcome which will result in increased investment in communications infrastructure. Competitors believe strict conditions could have been imposed. Cell C's Masia Sotikwa says the company will make submissions to the hearing to be held by the competition tribunal. Vodacom is already a, a dominant player and then you allow it assets of another player which makes it an even more dominant player. So we don't see how this transaction is going to enhance competition. In fact, we believe quite the reverse. It's going to reduce competition. MTN has also raised concerns. Chris Maroling is with MTN. We have requested uh, the Competition Commission to furnish us with the, the full details of this report. Uh, once we have received this report, we will study it and analyze uh, the implications of uh, uh, this proposed transaction to MTN. Telecom's analyst, Arthur Goldstock, says the move is good news for the economy. Neotel on its own wasn't able to compete very effectively with any of the major players. The one area where it had a very effective presence was in uh, fiber connections to business. So giving businesses high-speed broadband connectivity. And that's an area where Vodacom was particularly weak. So it plugs a gap for Vodacom. But the main thing is 
that the spectrum that Neotel has for providing high-speed wireless broadband will now become available. Vodacom won't be able to integrate it into its own services for two years, but two years is a very short time in the history of telecommunications. The competition tribunal will conduct hearings on this matter and then make a final decision. I am Tepo Mungwai in Johannesburg. A tax filing season has officially begun in South Africa. The South African Revenue Services, SARS, opened its e-filing system yesterday. The country's finance minister, Ntlantlanene, and SARS commissioner, Tom Moyane, visited the head office in the capital, Pretoria, to officially declare the tax season open. Tsepo Mungwai and Diabo Sito compiled this report. The tax season is now open. According to SARS, more than 20,000 taxpayers had already filed their returns few hours after the opening. SARS Commissioner Tom Moyani says the Revenue Service has set a target of collecting 1.1 trillion rent this season. Paying taxes helps in the domestic investment, helping us to build the schools, clinics, and helping our older people to be able to be assisted in various fields. We would not be having this country running as efficiently as we want to. Taxpayers lined up at various SARS branches across the country early this morning, many hoping for a refund. I'm a taxpayer, so today I just decided, Uti, I have time, so now I just want to come and claim my returns. I like to finish this as soon as possible because when the times go on, the queues are going to be very long. The rules have changed slightly this season. SARS says people whose income is less than 350,000 rent do not have to file unless they have more than one employer or receive car allowances. Finance Minister Ntlantanene says tax targets are based on the pedestrian economic growth. Still, government remains enthusiastic that improvements in economic growth are on the horizon. Seen the numbers that are coming out, uh, even though it's a mixed bag, we've seen the numbers that show how employment has uh, slowed down. But we've also got numbers that have shown how we have improved on the other deficit of of, uh, the trade trade account showing an improvement with uh, our exports growing. The tax season runs from July to November every year. But provisional taxpayers who submit online have until January next year. I am Tepo Mungwai in Johannesburg. It's 8.50 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans, and starting off with football news. Japan have advanced to the Women's World Cup final after a 2-1 victory over England in the semi-finals at Edmonton, Canada, earlier this morning. The winning margin was provided by an own goal from England defender Laura Bassett, who attempted to clear the ball but accidentally sent it into the England net in the 92nd minute. The result means that the defending champions will now play the United States of America in the finals on Sunday. Meanwhile, forward Abby Wombach says the team will have to be in top form when they face Japan. I think the next couple of days are going to be huge because we haven't done anything yet. I know that beating a German team is something that you want to celebrate, but we still haven't won a World Cup. A lot of us were, were there in 2011. 
felt what it felt like to almost feel like it's meant to be this meant to be feeling but you got to go through those 90 or 120 minutes in that final and you got to play well and you got to finish your chances to call yourself a world champion japan did it two four years ago we want to do it this time around so we can't take anything for granted we can't we can't take one moment off we can't take one minute off so in football news, Argentina are odds on favourite to win the Copa America for the first time since 1993 by beating Chile in Saturday's final. Chile swept through the group and the knockout stages with relative ease but benefited from being drawn against weaker teams with referee decisions also tending to go their way. Lionel Messi's led Argentine side nearly stumbled against Colombia, beating them in the quarterfinals on penalties, but the 6-1 destruction of Paraguay in the semis on Tuesday was a clear demonstration of the havoc they are capable of wrecking. Chile forward Eduardo Vargas, who played in the Premier League for Queen's Park Rangers last season on loan to Napoli, is tournament top goal scorer and favourite to win the Golden Boot. Now to tennis news. Wimbledon Centre Court was being, or rather, was being evacuated following a fire. Has been evacuated following a fire alert. Play had been completed for the day on Wednesday evening when an announcement was made over the public address system requesting that anyone remaining inside the building should immediately leave. The authorities then made a further announcement requesting that anyone on the T-Lawn gates between gates 4 and 5 should also evacuate. Moments later everyone within the All England Club grounds were ordered to leave immediately with security staff conducting a swift evacuation. Although there were no obvious immediate indication of a fire inside Centre Court, several fire crews did rush to the scene. And finally in golf news, Graham McDowell is chasing a historic third successive victory at the latest event on the European Tour. The Alstom Open de France, the Ryder Cup star, is looking to join an elite group of players to achieve this feat. Nick Dyer reports. Nick Faldo, Ian Woosnam, Colin Montgomery, Ernie Els and Tiger Woods, the only players to win for three consecutive years at a European Tour event. Marcel Dallemagne won the French Open three years in a row from 1936. While McDowell will play down his chances to write a new page in the record books, he's well aware of what he could achieve over one of his favourite courses. He's aware too, of course, of the strength of opposition. Martin Keimer and Lee Westwood will expect to prosper alongside the informed Francesco Molinari. There are home stars aplenty too, with Victor de Buisson and Alex Levy among those aiming to be a first French winner since Thomas Levey in 2011. For those are your sports news at the South, stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Bafana, Bafana, what do you think their chances are? Well, after their performance in the first leg against Mauritius two weeks ago, um, I'm sh- it's almost certain that they would have made it into the next round of the Chan qualifiers. So it's just a matter of consolidating their 3-0 lead and making sure that they score more goals in the second leg. Well, let's hope so, because we're tired of getting excited and getting disappointed, you know, all in the same breath. Well, it's going to happen, Lulu, no worries. (laughs) Okay, we look forward to it. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka na Unai. 
Recapping our top stories in Africa, Raz and Shine at this hour. The family of Lesotho's former military commander says they believe his death was a premeditated assassination and excitement from Kenyans as American President Barack Obama heads to their country for the first time as president. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Lebu Munamukhulu, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or follow us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Kaifa Semenya with a song titled Angelina. Don't you know?